I recently saw a video of a man who was giving a talk on the issue of same-sex marriage. And in this video, he was talking about how he was kind of directing it toward pastors and toward leaders and toward people in the church. And basically his point right from the get-go of this message that he was giving was uh, basically, why is it that pastors, when you're talking about this, why do you give all these disclaimers as you're talking about this issue? And his point was that we just need to call this thing out as sin, is essentially what he says. You've got to call this thing out as sin, call it like it is, stop tiptoeing around it. It's an issue that he believes is very black and white. Uh, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people who believe that. And the, the reason that I found that video and that message to be a bit ridiculous to me is because we're dealing with people. We're dealing with human beings, people who are created in the image of God. We've done this entire last few weeks on this, that God has breathed life into you. He breathed into the dirt. He formed man from the image of, man, of God. He created us. We are image bearers of God. And so we're dealing with human beings, people who have, in many instances, built their entire lives around something that in order for them to then perhaps follow the path that is being laid out for them, they would actually have to tear their entire world down. And what that's left us with is a complicated world in which, quite frankly, one-worded answers, one-sentence answers, even one-sermon answers often leave people more scarred than they do healed, than it heals them. It leaves them more confused than it does leave them inspired. When our objective, the church's objective, our goal is to bring Jesus into all areas of their lives, all areas of your life. That is why we exist. We want to make Jesus known and we want him to be in every area of your life. So if the way that this topic is handled uh, in a conversation you have with somebody or in a podcast you listen to or in this message that I give, whatever it is, if the conversation, uh, if it leads you further from Jesus, that is a problem. I believe, like we said two weeks ago, that the church contributed greatly to creating the chasm between God and the gay community. Because when we should have been loving people and we should have been standing uh, up for people and been standing with the marginalized and taking time to listen to people, instead we've been on the other side just sort of throwing stones at people. We've been so quick to cast stones at people and heap guilt upon them. And what we've sort of done over the years, and I think it's gotten better, but we've sort of drawn this line in the sand where it's like, well, this is us, we're over here. This is them, they're over there. They're on one side. And we, of course, are on another side. This couldn't be further from the gospel. And this couldn't be further from the life of Jesus. The, the entire point of Romans 1, of what we've been studying and what we're going to continue through today and next week, is that we all, all of us have traded the glory of God, the image, the life that was intended for us, we have traded that for one thing or another. And how easy it is to look down on somebody who's maybe exchanged that glory for some, in a way that maybe you don't understand. And we don't get why you would you trade that. It's very easy to judge people differently who 
trade things in a way that maybe we don't. But at the same time, the church does have a responsibility to be both faithful to the people who are a part of it and to the word of God, which we believe with all of our heart that followers of Jesus are to live their lives by. And this is definitely one of those issues like we talked about last week, uh, where you're like, you know, you go to the mess, you read the Bible, you hear the messages, you listen to the sermons, and you're like, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, and then you get to this one issue, and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm with you. I'm not sure if I'm with you. So, a few disclaimers. Courage Church is not in the business of behavior modification. We are not in the business of this. We are in the business of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that meets you right where you are. We are not here to tell you what you can and what you cannot do behind closed doors, but we are here to tell you about Jesus. And we're here to tell you about the God of the universe who died in your place and who wants to work miracles in your life. The life that we see and the life behind closed doors that we do not see. We are here to help you fall more in love with Jesus. We are here to cultivate that romance with you and Jesus Christ. Because we believe that when the gospel takes a hold of your life, it begins to work in the deepest parts of your heart and more and more and more we all become like Jesus. But we are a Bible church and we do teach the Bible. And when you come into this place, my hope is that you would have an expectation that we would be faithful to the Bible. We determined years ago that we would do expository, not all the time, but for the most part we would do expository, like line by line teachings through the Bible. And the reason that we do it that way is because it truly does, it gives the Bible a chance to speak for itself. Rather than us always just trying to fit it into culture, fit it into whatever's going on. So we don't avoid the difficult parts, but we don't go looking for them either. They always seem to find us as we just kind of go through the Bible. And when they do come, we, we don't cower away from them. We try our best to face them head on. And this passage is one that we're going to try to answer as many questions that you maybe have. But we also know that there'll probably be more. And we're willing to have more conversations. We're willing to uh, create more content online or whatever that may be. Uh, this is a subject that many people have wrestled with over the years and have drawn different conclusions on. Uh, in fact, for those of you who have been following this, the Methodist Church uh, yesterday it, it began, con, uh, began a meeting that's going to go until Tuesday in which they're basically determining if they're going to split their entire church up over this one issue. They're, they're, they're not, because so many are opposed to it and a lot of them are for it and they're saying, hey, this might be worth, like, we're, what are we going to decide? And they're creating exit strategies for both sides, depending on what the denomination determines. Like, that's how big of a deal this is in our world right now. And so, that to say there are a lot of different views on this, and if what we say is one that perhaps you are uncertain of, you should research, you should read, you should read books, and more importantly, you should definitely read the Bible, and you should pray to the Holy Spirit to be the light that guides you in that study. Today is not going to be a thorough teaching through the ins and the outs of gay marriage, where we go through every single passage in the entire Bible on it. Rather, this is going to be a teaching through Romans 1, and two specific things that he says in Romans 1 uh, that I believe pertain to our world. So, if in hearing these words, today you find 
yourself feeling rejected by the church or by Jesus or by me, that is the farthest thing that we want to do. And please, please have a conversation with us. We are here for you. We exist for you. We exist for your friends. We exist for the people who aren't a part of our church yet. We believe that this conversation is ongoing. Uh, and as we all just sort of do that hard work to live out the gospel in our lives. But please know this. This is not something that I took lightly at all as I prepared. So before we get into Romans, I want to read us something from the Gospel of John. And I want us to look at the way that the Gospel writer John introduces Jesus to the world. He says this, the Word became flesh. So John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God, right? And then in John 1.14, it says, the Word became flesh. So it all manifested itself in Jesus. And then Jesus dwelt among us. But then look at what it says. It says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Glory. Pastor Austin hit on it during transition. It's the same glory we've been talking about uh, this entire section. The same glory that we are called to be image bearers of. It says that when we look into Jesus and we see who Jesus is, we see he's the son of God and you see that glory manifested in the way that he is full of grace. But he's also full of truth. And that is what my prayer is that this message will be filled with today. The glory of God. The God who meets you right where you are, shows grace to even the most hopeless situations, but also the God in whom truth truly is found in. And like John says, the truth will set you free. He has more for you than you could ever, ever, ever imagine. And this is the very last thing that I want to say before I actually read this passage, and it's this. Um, whenever you isolate parts of the Bible, specific passages in the Bible, things get very, very ugly very, very, very quickly if you're not careful. And the verses that we're about to read have been used as missiles to just destroy people's lives. And what we're going to do today as we read is we're actually going to do something a bit different uh, than normally happens when people read this brutal passage in Romans 1 is we're actually going to keep reading into Romans chapter 2. And we want to remind you this, that when, when Paul wrote Romans, he wrote it as a letter. He did not put little numbers throughout this letter. He didn't break it up into chapters and verses. We did that later. The New Testament was broken up into chapters and verses in 1551. The Old Testament, uh, 1445, I believe. And it was done as a way for you and I to find things easier. That is why we break it up that way. So for us to just determine when one thought ends and another thought begins, I believe it's, sometimes it makes assumptions that aren't always accurate. This one in particular, when you read Romans 1, 18 through 32, but then you don't read the first four verses of Romans 2, you kind of end up with something a bit different, a bit isolated and very incomplete. In fact, actually, the, th the flow of thought goes all the way to 2.16, uh, but we're going to save most of chapter 2 for some of these coming weeks. I think we could get the point across just by reading uh, chapter uh, 1, 26-32 and 2, 1-4. So let's read this, Romans chapter 1, verse 26-32, and then 2, 1-4. And remember this as we get into this. Remember what we talked about, doxa, right? Glory, the glory of God, Right? The point of this whole thing is the glory of God. And why would anybody ever want to exchange that 
for something that one day is going to disappear. Yet we've been doing that from the very beginning of time. Adam and Eve did it in the garden. Israel did it with the golden calf. And when we choose to live life on our own terms, we do it. When we, when we know the mission, and yet in spite of the mission and the purposes that God gives us, we exchange it. So here we go. I'm going to just real quickly read 18. 18 is not on the screen, uh, but it's, 18 starts by saying, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Now it says this, starting in 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, and insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Some of that list we're going to get into next week. Then verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, watch this, but give approval to those who practice them. And now we're going to turn the page. We're going to continue reading. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I'm going to pray again because I just need to. (laughs) Lord, Spirit, we already asked you to be here. We know you're here. God, I pray against the spirit of offense today. I pray for a spirit of love, a spirit of unity. Father God, I pray for people who have been through any of the things that we've taught, we're going to talk through today, Father God. For people who have been through marriages that have been broken, Father God. I pray healing. For people who are, have dealt with some of these issues with same-sex relationships, Father God. Lord, we just pray that, Lord, for whatever it is, maybe they're just felt so beat up by the church. God, I pray for healing. God, whatever it is, maybe they're, uh, maybe they're looking to find you and, they're, and as they're finding you, they're, they're wrestling with things, Father God. I pray clarity, Lord, as to how to navigate how the gospel needs to look in their lives, God. God, this is so much. But we want to be faithful to it, Lord. Please, God, if there's anything that you don't want me to say, let me not say that, God. Give me wisdom. Amen. All right, two prayers in. We should be good now. I, th- I think the Spirit is really good with us now on this topic, right? Okay, so first of all, before we hone in on uh, any one passage, we first have to understand something very important about f- Paul's flow of thought here. 
In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul is speaking directly to what would be considered the sins of the Gentiles, okay? So the, the Roman church is made up of, of Gentiles and then the Jews who came back from, they were, they were exported uh, um, and they, had to, they came back in after five years, they find this church that's very not to their liking and basically they're upset about it. And so Paul's writing this church who's kind of divided on this. So 1, 18 through 32, he very specifically speaks to the sins of the Gentiles. He's giving them a handful of different examples. Now this is very important. This list is a list of different people and they are different examples. So it's not saying that one sin resulted in all of these other horrible sins. The point is that everybody finds themselves on this list one way or another. So he begins with something specific, right? Something that not everybody relates to. And then he widens it a little bit more, widens it a little bit more, and widens it a little bit more to the point where he's like, listen, if you can't think of anything evil, people are just making up evil things just to be evil. That's how bad it sort of gets there. That's how far we've come. But the first section, one, uh, 18 through 32, Anytime a Jew would be, would be listening to Paul's words here, they'd, in, they're listening to Paul say these things, it would be very easy for a Jew who had abstained from much of these things because the law told them to, it'd be very easy for them to begin to get all puffed up about who they are and about the way that they've lived their lives and agree with Paul that the wrath of God was coming down on everyone else. But what Paul does right after that, what he goes into right after that, is he immediately says, if you think that you're not on this list, you are just as guilty. So chapter 1 begins with the gospel. Uh, then a description of how the Gentiles are guilty. Chapter 2 flips it on the Jews, shows them how they're also guilty. Chapter 3 eventually returns to the gospel and essentially explains how God, through Jesus, deals with all the sin on this list, every exchange on this list, on behalf of how everybody is guilty. So everybody is guilty. Jesus has dealt with everybody this way. You have to treat it as a whole before you look at it with a microscope. And as a whole, that's the point. We're all there. We're all on the list. We all fall short. Every one of us, one way or another, has exchanged the glory of God for a lie or for something that expires. We've traded it for something that is different than what God has for us. We're all guilty. And everyone on this list can be justified if they call on the name of the Lord. So from the list that we just read today, we're only going to focus on verses 26 and 27 and then a little bit of uh, the transition from, two to, uh, from 1 to 2. As a foundation, I kind of want us to look at this. This is kind of the centerpiece. These two verses, this is how chapter 1 ends, how chapter 2 begins. So chapter 132 says something that I do not take lightly at all. It says, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Then it says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So first, this issue of giving approval. Now, this applies to this entire list. And this applies to every other area of your life that perhaps is not as it should be. But telling people that the way that they're living is permissible, giving approval, that's exactly what everybody wants. It's what everybody's looking for. And it's what Paul very, very specifically says here you cannot do. 
One thing that I've determined in my journey, kind of walking through faith, is as a general rule, I don't affirm people when it comes to questions of identity and who I am, who am I, unless Jesus is that identity. Uh, and, and, and we need to affirm what we can in one another. So like, you know, like Thessalonians talks about how we need to, um, we need to encourage one another and build each other up and raise each other, like, hey, you're doing a great job. Hey, worship was amazing. Hey, th- this, you're on a really good track in this area of your life. I've seen so much improvement. That stuff is okay. But when it comes to identity, unless that identity is found in Christ, we don't, we don't affirm it. And I'll explain to you why. We need to affirm that if you're in Jesus, you don't need to worry, you don't need to be afraid of all the other stuff. You're a child of God. But the Bible also says speak the truth to one another. That's what Ephesians 4 says. It says you've got to speak the truth to one another. And the truth is that Jesus wants to work in every area of your life. So when you come to me with a question of, am I all right with God? My immediate response is going to be another question. Well, do you love Jesus? Do you think that you can save yourself? Do you think that you need Jesus? Have you let Jesus into that area of your life? What has the Holy Spirit spoken to you about that area? And have you confirmed that word with the word of God? Because the Holy Spirit's not going to say something to you that's going to directly contradict the Holy Scriptures. The problem is that the moment that you think that you're okay in your own flesh, no matter what you're doing in your own life, you are actually denying the need for Jesus to work in that area of your life. Which, by definition, and I know this is a very scary word, but by definition, that is antichrist. No matter what it is you're pointing to, to say this part of me does not need to change. The word antichrist, if you want to do a study on it, go read Revelation 500 times in a row and you'll never find the word once. It is not in there. The word only shows up in 1 John and 2 John, the John's epistles. And the word talks, and the whole point is something that seeks the place of Christ. Something in your life that gives you the idea, this can save me, so I do not need Jesus to save me. And John says it's in the world already. And it's not, and it's plural, it's not singular, it's not one thing. So when you're able to convince yourself that the way that you're living or, the, or what you're doing, you can go on and it's just fine, no matter what it is you're doing, I don't care, quite frankly, if you have the perfect heterosexual marriage and you never fight, which is completely impossible, and you have three kids who never misbehave, which is also even more impossible, and you... You tie 10% of your income, you give 20 more percent to missions, you serve in the soup kitchen, you had dinner with the widow, then went to the soup kitchen, then served the homeless, and you're fostering two kids that you're trying to adopt, right? Those things are awesome. Please do all of those things. That'd be amazing. But if Jesus is not in your life, I'm still going to tell you, you need Jesus in your life. My theology on this has been shaped over the years um, through, mostly through studying the Gospels, to be quite frank. And I'll give you two brief examples. This really helps shape this in me. And I hope this helps you. One is a parable in, in Luke, Luke 18. Uh, G- Jesus tells a parable. And guys, this thing wrecked me when I grasped it. Because I saw myself in the story and I was the bad guy. I was the wrong character. So there are two men that walk into the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee and the other's a tax collector. One is religious. He lives by the book. 
He does everything that he can in his own strength to, at the end of the day, pat himself on the back and be like, bravo, I did it. Good and faithful servant. You know, like that's, that's everything he can do to believe that he's okay. That's exactly what he does. The other guy does what we would consider to be way worse things. He extorted people, he hurt people, he robbed people, essentially. And in this story, what happens is the religious man goes and he prays a very religious prayer. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. Thank you that I'm not like the tax collector. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer. Thank you that I'm not unjust. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of everything that I get. But then the tax collector comes up. Actually, he doesn't come up. He stays in the back. He wouldn't even approach the altar because he knew how guilty he was. He had done way worse things. And he knew in his heart, I'm unworthy of anything that God may give me. And should I receive forgiveness at all, it will only be a sheer act of the mercy and the grace of God. He beats his breasts and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus ends this parable by saying, I tell you, this man rather than the other man went to his house justified. Now the point was not the level in which one person's sin seemed worse than another's. The point was the posture in which one person approached the throne of grace knowing, I am not who I should be. And the word that Jesus used for that man is justified. The same word that Paul uses in Romans. It's the point of Romans. Justification. He knew in his own life, I'm in big trouble. But because of that humble posture that he took, knowing I cannot save myself, he was declared to be righteous solely because of what Jesus did. Because God exalts the humble. You know, I, I think religion can serve as an antichrist for a lot of us, just like the first man in the story. I think that there's a lot of cases uh, that it's harder for religious people to come to Jesus uh, than people who know we commit obvious sins because at least one knows they're doing the wrong thing. But the point of this story is not to tell you that religion is bad. The point of the story is to show you that we can get so caught up in how we think things should be or what we've gotten comfortable with, and then we can look at our lives and we can think that on our own, we're okay, we measure up, we, we think, oh, everything's fine, I can just stay this way. But you know what? The one who refused to acknowledge his need for the Savior was not justified. It didn't say one, or that they both left their house justified. It wasn't the tax collector was just as justified. It said the tax collector, rather than the religious man, left that place justified. Declare righteous. The other example that I often revert back to, and you guys hear me tell you this story often is Matthew 9, because this story, same thing. I, uh, I saw myself in this story, and it wrecked me when I realized who I was in it. Jesus uh, just called Matthew, and Matthew also was a tax collector, and Matthew was Jewish. So what Matthew actually did was he bought the rights from the Roman government to tax his own people, to tax the Jewish people. Awful dude. So he buys the rights, taxes his own people. He knows, okay, well, this is what Caesar wants, so he'll tax them the amount for Caesar. Then he taxed them whatever else he wanted off himself to take off the top. So to his people, he would be a traitor. He was a scumbag. Like, he was a thief. But Jesus calls him. He says, follow me. And then they go to Jesus, or then Jesus goes to Matthew's house and they're, and they're all having dinner. And he's having dinner with a bunch of sinners. 
And the Pharisees, the religious people, they asked Jesus' disciples, they're like, dude, why is your master, why is Jesus eating with such sinful people? And Jesus responds to that question by saying this. He says, you know what? Those who are well, they don't need a doctor. They have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, And again, this is where I put myself in the story. See, for years I've read it. And I read it thinking, Jesus came to call sinners. He came for the sick. I too should call the sick. I too exist for the sick. I should reach out to love and love people who are very broken. And I should do that 100%. That is very true. The church exists for the broken. But if the first thing I think of when I read this story is I need to go find sick people to eat with, who does that make me in the story? It makes me someone who doesn't think he's sick. It makes me someone who doesn't think he needs to be rescued. But Jesus is looking for people who know they need him to eat with him. He wants to rescue you, but he resists the proud. He resists the ones who think that they don't need it. I want to have dinner with Jesus, man. I want to be at that table. So this is what Paul says in Romans 1, 26 and 27. He says, for this reason, because of this exchange that took place, God, he finally just gave up. He said, fine, you can, you, I will let you have this if this is what you want. So God gave them up to their just honorable passions. And we, we talked about this last week. It's not God giving up on people. Okay, you'll have to go back to hear that uh, for a little bit more on that. But he says, for the women exchange natural relations for those who are, that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now what people often try to do here is they try to dive into this historically. Uh, We don't have time to do that right now. If I can make the time, I will record some of the history for you online. Uh, I think that's important. But the reason people do that is they want to show that the relationships that Paul is describing here are different than what we would consider to maybe be a monogamous uh, same-sex relationship, a faithful relationship today. And that very well may be true. But the point of this passage is not to come down on this particular issue. The point is also not what they are doing. The point is what they are exchanging. The point is that God gave them glory and they chose something else. Because marriage is actually in the second half of this sermon, which might be a little longer than some of the other sermons. I should have told you that last week. (laughs) But uh, it's going to be mostly about marriage. Marriage is one of the most complicated images we get of the glory of God. But it's incredible. But because what we found um, in the past about this issue in our community is what we, we often find people, um, you, you, know, you guys know this, we love people where they are. We meet people where they are. We accept people right where they are. We do life with people where they are. We don't condemn people. We, you know, we want to be in community with you, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done. We, we, but what happens is because we do that, sometimes people hear our positions on this later, like in sidebar conversations, which is typically where those should happen, and they feel tricked when they find out where we stand. They feel like it was a bait and switch, and that's not our hearts at all. Now, if we were like evangelists or whatever, we would never have to come out and even share this, but we're, we're local pastors trying to build a local community of people up, so we, that's the only reason that we even feel the need that we need to do this, because uh, we're, as we're taking you through the Bible. But the question I'm usually asked 
Is our same-sex relationship sinful? Like, is it a sin to act on those desires? And to be very clear, we are talking about actions. We are not talking about motives. We are not talking about feelings or emotions or desires. But to me, that question, and if, you're, if this is your first time here, I'm so sorry that this is what we're talking about. We don't do this very often. <laughs> But to me, that question, that is it a sin question, totally misses the entire point. If you're asking that question, you need to revert back to the Beatitudes. You need to revert back to blessed are the poor in spirit, the people who know that they need Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because what it's asking is, can I live a certain way and be fine? Or can I live a certain way and still get into heaven? It's a very like mono, like my... What's it going to take for me to be okay? Well, you can't get into heaven without Jesus. That is the gospel that we preach here. So let's start there, right? Do you love Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you believe that the arms of his grace are wide enough and long enough to extend to even you in whatever situation that you perhaps find yourself in today? And if you do believe that, then what is driving your question? Are you looking for an advocate? A lot of times, quite frankly, people are. Or, God forbid, I know this sounds horrible, but it, I've seen it a lot. Are you looking for somebody to demonize? Are you looking for somebody to make a statement that you can use against them for your cause? Or is there a conviction there? And if there is a conviction there, I would say this please take warning. Because the more you ignore the guiding voice, the less, the, the, the quieter it's going to become. That's what we talked about last week. You, you go callous to these voices the more that you hear them and the less that you respond to them. But guys, the Bible makes it very, very clear that it is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict people of their sins. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict people of their sins. It is the job of the church, you and I, not just me, me, you, all of us, to love God and to love people, to go into all the world and make disciples. And yes, making disciples may include conversations like this one, but it's not the first conversation. It's not the second conversation. It doesn't necessarily even need to be the 30th or the 40th or the 50th conversations. These are the kind of conversations that we have when someone lives this way and then they get saved and then after they get saved and the Holy Spirit starts working on their heart, suddenly they get a conviction. And then they come to you and they say, I don't know why I'm convicted about this. I don't know what's going on. Then we open our Bibles and we have these types of conversations together. But for clarity's sake, to give a short answer, which I, I think that it's so dangerous to give short answers to stuff like this. But again, I don't want the bait and switch thing. But it is our conviction based in part on that very last line in Romans, uh, but more so ultimately based on the whole of the Bible and a clear understanding of the gospel, which I tried to explain for you, I cannot see a clear, I cannot see a biblical path for affirming. To tell somebody else who's trying to follow Jesus, it's totally fine to live this way. I guess from everything that I've studied in the Bible, and what it's saying, it seems to me, to, to, and I, again, I know that there are other denominations of people who take this differently. When I read it, I feel like it's biblically and theologically impossible to affirm same-sex marriage. As much as people wish and long that we would. 
And I know that that's hard to hear. Honestly, it's hard to say. It doesn't mean we don't love you. It doesn't mean we won't fight for you every single day. It doesn't mean we won't stand with you. We are here. We are willing to get in the, into the dirt and ground as dirty as we need to get to show you how much Jesus loves you. But if I'm asked, can I keep doing this thing that I'm doing, whatever it is, am I okay to stay in this relationship? Does Jesus think that this is beautiful, whatever it might be, by a person who is genuinely trying to follow Jesus? That's who we're talking about here. How can anybody be faithful to a text that says how important it is to not give approval to other people doing this exchange and then still give it approval for it? Just be like, hey, yeah, go ahead and do it. How can we do that? Now, I also do not believe that we need to go looking for people to call that out in either. I don't believe we need to puff ourselves up by telling them that what they're doing is wrong. That's very clear by what Paul says. Discipleship takes place in the context of conversations as we live life out in community with one another. I think as a general rule, this is kind of why we did what we did earlier in the series. Um, we need to revert back to the way that uh, what Moses did and how he handled it with Israel when they did their exchange. Remember, God was mad at Israel. They were guilty, but Moses put himself in the middle and said, you know what, God, let me stand between the sinful people and what they deserve. He loved them so much, he stood in the gap. Jesus, with the woman caught in adultery, did the same thing. It's another beautiful reminder. We're to stand in the gap. Guys, the gay community needs to know that the church is for them. Not speaking out against them or advocating for laws that keep them marginalized or held down. Those things do nothing to bring anybody closer to Jesus. And in fact, it only pushes people further away from ever wanting anything to do with our Lord and Savior. The church exists to lift people up to usher them into a relationship with the God who died for them. They need to know that they're welcome in our community and that we trust the Holy Spirit to work in them in the same way that I trust he's going to work in me, the way that he works in my wife, the way I trust that he's working in all of you. And that doesn't mean, hear this please, I'm not saying you're welcome here as long as you change. I am not saying that at all. I'm saying you are welcome here Let's talk about Jesus. Let's see what the Holy Spirit does in all of us. But you belong here. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, you belong here. Built into every single human being, all of us, we have this desire to be fully known and then still fully accepted for who we are. Even after you know all this stuff, you still accept me. I think the church is the only place that that's possible. And it needs to be this place. But you can fully accept someone and still acknowledge the need for the gospel to work in their lives. That's the entire point of salvation. Jesus saves us and he's saving us and he will save us. If you affirm something is as it should be, you cut off its ability to be transformed. But it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their sins and it's God's job to judge that person. I don't believe that we need to do the Holy Spirit's job, but I don't believe that we should be a hindering block for him either. But this is why I find it so significant that so often, again, we, we read this little passage here, we get to it, you're getting a sermon on it or whatever, and then, and then you get to verse 32 and you just sort of close the book. You throw it down and be like, well, there you have it. Because the very next thing that Paul says in 2.1 is, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges people for this. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The gospel is the only thing that's going to reconcile the lost back to God. 
It is the only thing that matters until a person comes full circle, turns with the fact that they're poor in spirit and they need Jesus and that they cannot save themselves. And at that point, quite frankly, church, we are all sinners washed by the same blood of Jesus and we don't have, we have no business going and looking for sins in others while we don't even deal with the ones of our own. We work out salvations in community. We work together to lift each other up through love and through accountability, but not through judgment. We're not, we're not the judge. And we're going to get more into that in the next two weeks. Now, I'm very well aware that that is just not enough for some of you. I'm also well aware that culture has changed. But the God plan, the cultural mandate, the image of God revealed through his creation and the image of God revealed through marriage between a man and a woman has always existed and it will always be. And the entire point of what Paul is saying here in using this example, it's not to call out this specific practice, but it is to demonstrate the magnitude of which we have exchanged the very thing that God designed to both move the world forward and to reflect his glory. His message is the image of God, the glory of God, and how we've given that up for all sorts of things that are unworthy of praise and unworthy of attention. So in verse 26 and 27, he specifically talks about the sexual stuff. They exchange natural relations for those contrary to nature. Now nature, some argue, is like saying, well, you're saying nature to you. What's natural to you? I don't believe that's what it's saying. I think it's very, very clear that he's continuously referring back to Genesis here. If you read it closely, verse 20, God's divine attributes clearly perceived from the beginning of time, from the creation of the world, exchanging the truth for a lie. All these things are Genesis language. Uh, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. When he, it's my conviction that when he talks about natural, he's referring to what is laid out in the Bible in Genesis as natural. Now, it's very, very important as, if, as people who want to be image bearers of Christ, whether you're married or not, but especially if you're married, that we clearly define what the Bible would describe as natural and what that even means. Because marriage itself actually is described by Paul in Ephesians as being like the most beautiful picture that we get, the best, the best image that we get of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Ultimately, it's an image of glory. So God created Adam in his image. Oh, there's Adam. But the Bible says that Adam was all alone. He created all these things. He says, oh, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. I created that. Uh, yeah, earth, earth, earth's good. Sky's good. You know, sun's good. All of it's good. But then he creates Adam and he, he thinks it's good and then he looks and he sees them he says, man, man is all alone. He says, that's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, this is going to get a little crazy. But it's really cool. The word helper is the word azair. We often get it to describe God. Like when the psalmist says, our soul waiteth for the Lord, he is our helper and our shield. Um, it, it has resonance of redemption, of, of a redeemer, of one who actually rescues man. In fact, almost every time the word Azar is used in the Bible, it is used to describe God. Not just, this is one of the only times it's not. So that's how woman is, descri is described as. It's something that's crucial, that is missing from the man. Something that she completed. Now the word fit is the Hebrew word konegdo. Connecto is a combination of two words, one that means similar and another that means opposite. Similar? 
opposite, similar, but different. Genesis is actually filled, and I'm going to do more on this next week when I have more time, but Genesis is filled with contrasting things, different images of things that are different but work together. So in in 1, 4 through 5, you have light and darkness, right? God separates them, but they're both necessary to make up a day. Uh, You have two great lights. You have one for day, one for night. You have the land and the sea, water, dry land, Genesis 1, 9. You get the picture, most likely. And after God creates woman from man, he describes the way that the two will come together and what will happen when they do. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one, one flesh. Now the word one is the Hebrew word ehad. And ehad is not one as in the first number, one as, it's one as in united. It's the same word you get in the Shema. The Shema is uh, something that faithful Jews wake up every morning and they recite. It's Deuteronomy 6.5. It says, hear o, uh, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Ehad. You shall love the Lord your God. Ehad, it, what, it, what it literally means is unity in the midst of diversity. It's a compounded unity, together but different. It's an, ama- it's an amazing image of the Trinity basically laid out in the Old Testament. God, you're one, but you're more than one. God says that that's in the same way that the God is Ehad. He says that when you become married, you become Ehad. The two that are different shall come together, and there will be a power in that coming together that reflects something much bigger. Again, we're going to hone in on Ehad a lot more next week. Um, so hold on to that because it's one of the biggest concepts in the Bible and I wish I could do like 10 more minutes on it right now, but I can't. But for today, what you need to see is that it is the distinct joining together in which two things that are distinctly different work together to create something that would be impossible to create without both parts. That's Ehad. It's used to describe God and it's used to describe marriage. Next, there's a... F- fascinating revelation in the Hebrew language itself in which the words man and woman are used in the way that they work together. And I will say this knowing that some things are just a coincidence and there's a possibility this is just a coincidence but I just don't think that God's that random. But in Hebrew the word for husband or man is the word ish. Three letters. Aleph, Yod, and Shin. Okay, in in. Hebrew the, for isha, or for, for wife, the Hebrew, the Hebrew for the word wife is the word isha. Uh, uh, wife or woman is isha. It's three letters, aleph, shin, and hey. Now, if you look very closely at these two words, you see that there are two distinct letters in each of these two words. Two letters are the same. They're identical. Only one distinct in each. Only one is different. Aleph, shin is common. Distinct is yod and hey. Which, that's not that surprising, right? Because in English, man and woman, pretty similar words. And of course, we know that when God created woman, he created him, her from man. So that's not surprising. But here's what is surprising. If you remove the two letters that are the same, that, and you combine them, then what you have is that, that you, you remove the two distinct letters to each one, the one that makes each one distinct. You put them aside, in another word, you form the word Yah which is the word God. So all the way down to the first language that the Bible was written in, the words 
are identical with only one difference, and that difference combined spells God. When the complementary differences of a husband and a wife come together, the way that it was intended to be, there is a reflection of God there that cannot exist in any other way. When a man and woman come together and are living in unity and in harmony, the way that marriage was designed to be, God is in the midst of that relationship. He's there. His spirit rests on that relationship. In fact, it is the single greatest image that we get of what God is like. Two, both made distinct, complementary images of God coming together to create a beautiful reflection that could not be on its own. But here's the problem. Marriage is not easy. It's really, really hard. In fact, quite often I talk to people who are quick to point out that the dysfunctional marriages tend to be the heterosexual ones. More fighting, sometimes more abuse, more chaos. And the reason for this is complex, and we can't get into all of it today. But the truth is that there are differences that have to learn to work together. And when you come together, you have to learn to sort out these differences. And what happens when you do, and what happens when you don't. Unity in the midst of diversity, takes a level of determination in which you say, we're going to make this what it's supposed to be. But the most fascinating and terrifying thing about this kind of image you get in Hebrew for marriage is that when you remove the two distinct letters from a man and a woman that form the word of God, that form the name God, or in other words, when you remove, from the, you remove God from your marriage, you are left with the letters Aleph Shin, Aleph Shin. Aleph Shin spells fire. And it's twice, fire, 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 fire. In Hebrew, you didn't have exclamation points. If you wanted to emphasize something, you just double it. You'd say, fire, fire. That's a big fire. This is a really, really bad fire. This fire is out of control. It's how you emphasize things. It's the worst kind of fire. It's not going to get any worse than this. See, there are going to be tensions There are going to be things that are really hard to work out. And so often, things get very, very unhealthy, and your marriages, the things that are supposed to point people to Jesus, could actually detract and point people away from Jesus because they look at you and be like, is that Jesus? If that's Jesus, I'm going as far away as I can. The point is, for us to be who we're supposed to be in Christ is going to take work no matter where you stand. No matter what your life is like, it's going to take work to have healthy marriages. It's going to take work to have healthy relationships, just like it takes work to abstain from things that you know are not of God and they're not his best for you. It's going to take work to live a life that truly demonstrates to a broken world the Savior who died for it. Something that was meant to be the absolute greatest gift, the absolute best, it can become the absolute worst most destructive thing in your life. Which is why even what the Bible claims or calls natural relationships can actually become a false and a distorted view of God. We have the potential to destroy the very things that were created to bring God glory. And we all have our own routes for getting there. To be, we're supposed to be image bearers of God, right? That's the whole point of this section. Bear the image of God. And ultimately, what that means is it's not about what makes you feel good. It's not about what makes you happy, and it's not even about what fulfills you. It's about the fact that God has created us for a purpose, and when we walk in that purpose, the entire world will win. Things will keep going. It's powerful. People will see Jesus. But you can exchange God for fire. 
Your marriage can point people to Jesus and be a reflection of glory, or it can be a reflection and a driving force which points people away from Jesus. You know, in Ephesians 5, Paul, he kind of, um, he kind of puts a seal on this. Uh, he quotes Genesis 2. Uh, and that's 531 he quotes it. And then, and then he says, Man shall leave his father and mother, the two shall become a hod. Then he kind of drops a bomb at the end of this, in verse 32, and he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul, bringing a bit of clarity to it, he tells us that there are two things that we need to understand about marriage, and this is very important in the concept of being image bearers of God's glory. The first is that it's a mystery. It's something we're never going to quite understand fully. There will always be questions that we cannot answer, but it's worth the work. It's worth pushing for. It's worth doing it. It's profound. It's the Greek word megos. It's, it's not easy to understand, but it's amazing. And the sex, sec, uh, second point is that it's a reflection. It's a reflection of something bigger than that which meets the eye. It's designed to point people toward a relationship with Jesus. And, and quite frankly to me, this is the one that kind of levels the playing field on all this. Because what this is actually saying is that marriage is not for you. Marriage is not for me. Most of us, and I'm definitely can include myself in this, most of us enter marriage. Like we enter most things in our lives. We enter it thinking, this is the thing that I want. Of course so many of them have failed. Of course the world has a low view of it. Rarely do we enter into anything thinking this is my chance to make my life about someone else. This is my chance to live the gospel out and be part of something that demonstrates the love of God to our world. Of course you benefit from it. Of course there are things about it that are mutual. But marriage serves a bigger, uh, bigger picture than just the parts of it that are pleasurable. It's a mystery and it's a reflection. And when we exchange that for something that comes with a divine purpose of filling the whole earth with the glory of God, like people, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, we are trading away our call to the very first mission that God gave us. But with or without even things like procreation, marriage is still a reflection of Christ and the church. And it's an ultimate opportunity to bear the image of something divine. You cannot read the writings of Paul and not see that, especially Ephesians 5. Marriage is the most clear image we get of God. A triune, unified, yet diverse God. A God that is ahad, recklessly pursuing the church, knowing that the whole world can be changed by this image if we let it. So as we wrap things up today, we need to remember that first what happens here is Paul speaks to the Gentiles, okay? Then, right after that, he gets into the beginning of chapter 2. He flips it on the Jews and he shows, hey, you know what? You're all just as guilty. Because if we so much as pass judgment on someone who's sinning in a different way than maybe we struggle with, Paul says, you have what they have coming. You're just as guilty. Those who try to play judge now in the lives of others will answer to the judge later for impersonating him because it's all different forms of that same lack of honor, that same lack of glory given to the one who created it all. 
But then Paul kind of wraps this up in 2.4 by saying, but don't you know? Don't you know that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance? It's not the stones that keep hitting us in the head by all the crazy religious people who want to try and guilt us into having salvation. It's the kindness of God. And the kindness of God that he would literally, he would send his only son to die for us. That he would send his son to die for a world that deserved to die. And when, man, when you come face to face with your guilt and who you are, and you realize that because Jesus took all of that, now when God sees you, now he sees Jesus, that's meant to lead you to repentance. That's it. God saves us on account of nothing that we've done. But that salvation certainly should be cause for us to reflect who we, for, to, to reflect the way that God transformed who we once were into who we are now. And determine, you know what? We can look back on that and we can say, that's who we were. I'm not going back there. I'm not going back to who I once was. I'm a new creation. That's what the word repent means. The word repent means I'm going this way and I'm going to turn around. And I'm going to go a different way. It means to change your mind. It says, I think this. Nope, no, I don't think that anymore. I'm going a different way. It's so much simpler than you think. It's a turning around and going a different way. But the only thing that has the power to do that is the kindness of God. The perfect image of his love played out for us on the cross. As Jesus allowed himself to be died, to, to be killed by the people that he was dying on behalf of. Watch this. The very beginning I read Romans 1.18, because it's a scary verse, right? 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. This is one of those verses that are, they're so, so scary for people because they don't know what to do with it. Because you know you fall on the list. I know I'm on the list. We know that we've removed God from areas of our lives and we live our lives as if we don't need God in them. But you know what? The word ungodliness is the word asebaya. Asebaya. And you get this word again three, about four chapters later. In Romans 5, Romans 5, 6. Do you know what Romans 5, 6 says? It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is so significant because the very word that Paul uses as a way to introduce everything that he's talking about in these passages, about the wrath of God, he goes on to say that Jesus died for stand before you today and tell you with complete confidence that no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter where your head is in this exact moment, at the right time, at the perfect time, right when you needed it most, Christ died for you. And he died for me. And we as a church, we will forever lean into that reality that on my best day, I cannot save myself, but it was on my worst day that Christ died for me.